Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, The Truman Court, Law and the Limits of Loyalty, Ron James Jr. reveals that the largely overlooked but significant influence President Harry S. Truman had on the Supreme Court and how decisions he made continued to have an impact on the political and legal zeitgeist. The book is published by the University of Missouri Press and brings Mr. James, a former assistant attorney general for the District of Columbia, to our show now. Welcome. I hope you're there. Yes, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Justice William Douglas once said, most presidents name justices who they think will vote the way they would vote. That suggests that the decision is always more political than judicial. Um, so I, should I be surprised about the, what's happened recently with some of the newsmaking appointments that involved Barack Obama, Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump? Uh, well, the Mitch McConnell part certainly is uh, surprising and um, terrifically unfortunate. But um, the, as far as what the, the previous president, particularly with his nominations, um, he uh, did what he was supposed to do, um, and that is get votes. Um, and that's what I what I um, state in the beginning of the Truman mm -hmm. Court, that um, when a president uh, nominates a justice to or some, a potential justice to the Supreme Court, he or she is not interested in nominating someone who's going to write for the ages. He or she is interested in votes. How is the individual going to vote? And can I at least hope that that vote will remain reliable? And uh, thus far, the immediate P uh, past president um, did a good job with that, with uh, three, nom three successful nominations to the court. It's been claimed that perhaps the most overlooked aspect of Harry S. Truman's presidency is his judicial legacy. Why? What did he do? Did he do something different than his predecessors had done? Absolutely. He uh, was, was the first president to do what we now expect all of our presidents to do, and that is to use the Department of Justice um, and the Article Three branch of the Constitution, the judiciary, uh, to use it on, for lack of a better term, on offense rather than defense, rather than just to defend his administration's policies. He used the Department of Justice and eventually the Supreme Court to pursue his administration's policies. And we now expect that of our presidents of um, both major parties in uh, our, our political system. Prior to Kerry Truman, presidents engaged the uh, federal judiciary uh, defensively. And you know, um, perhaps the most famous um, one that most of us know is, is uh, Franklin Roosevelt's struggles with uh, defending the New Deal before the Supreme Court, which ended up in his, uh, what he called his judicial reform proposal, but what everyone else called the court packing plan um, in his effort to um, sustain his New Deal policies. Um, Pre uh, president Truman was the first to pursue the first president to pursue his administration's policies that he could not get through a segregation, a Senate that was controlled by Southern segregationists to pursue some of those policies offensively through his Department of Justice and through the judicial branch. But the Supreme Court repeatedly upheld Truman's most contentious policies, uh, which is a mixed bag that included actions to restrict free speech, but also to expand civil rights and and to, to manage labor union unrest. Were those actions all controversial at the time? Leonard, you're absolutely right that it, it is a, um, a mixed bag, um, to, to put it kindly. Um, there, there's I wouldn't say support for his uh, uh, administration's agenda, but um, their willingness to affirm, uh, uh, affirm it, hold it constitutional. Um, they, it, it was controversial um, at the time. The, in fact, the, the, um, the civil rights cases, the, and, and the Truman's Department of Justice was working under Attorney General Tom Clark, who later became Justice Tom Clark, um, was working very closely with the NAACP in pursuing this uh, civil rights agenda, which uh, was being led by um, uh, Thurgood Marshall um, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And they worked uh, very closely in, in pursuing this. And that actually, those, those decisions, which were all unanimous, were not terribly controversial um, at the time, even as they were, began to um, creep toward what um, then Southern governors began to see as uh, the goal of uh, full integration of all educational facilities. Um, 
but the what created a, a great deal of ire were, um, as you mentioned, these there's civil rights and then the civil liberties. The civil liberties are um, free speech, um, the ability of federal employees to in, engage in uh, political conduct, um, wiretapping. Those things were uh, very controversial at the time. Which is not to say that the segregation uh, decisions were uh, the desegregation decisions were not. They were controversial um, at the time, but it was uh, they were kind of too. Two, two separate lanes uh, on which the court was moving. One was unanimous, which were the desegregation decisions. The others presented a deeply divided court, and those were the civil liberty decisions. Now, two of your previous books, one was called Root and Branch, the other Double V, dealt with the history of desegregation in the United States. And Truman, wasn't Truman known to use racial slurs, tell racist jokes, oppose uh, sit-ins and intermarriage and and didn't he call Dr. Martin Luther King a troublemaker? So he has a he has a mixed legacy here as well. He does personally. Truman very much separated um, what he what his personal views were, and they were passed on uh, largely from his his mother. Um, what his personal views were, and what he believed was owed to all citizens. Uh, who were citizens of the United States of America. And this was part of his political, a, a large part of his political appeal. There is no way that Truman would have been nominated to be Franklin Roosevelt's vice president um, had he not had a reputation of telling the, he was from the state of Missouri. He was the junior yeah. senator from the state of Missouri, um, which was a, a, a border state. Um, so he was a compromise. Correct. He was there. the second Missouri compromise. And he would he would uh, tell people that he's a son of a uh, of an unreconstructed mother and his family. He's got an unreconstructed family. And that's why the Southerners were able to agree to put him uh, uh, agree to him being on the ticket with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but he believed very fervently that all American citizens should possess the same rights. He was the first president to address the NAACP. Um, and he did a, a number of other things that we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. Yeah. Um, but he very much separated his personal views, um, which were in many ways largely abhorrent um, from what he believed was owed to every American citizen. So even up until he became president, the military was segregated. And then he abolished discrimination, quote, on the basis of race, color, religion, and national origin in the U.S. Armed Forces by issuing Executive Order 9981 on July 26, 1948, which led to the reintegration of the, the services during the, the Korean War. How important is the issue of race in the story that you're telling here? In, it is, it's in, it's the entire subject of my second book, uh, The Double yeah. V, How Wars, Protests, and Harry Truman Desegregated America's Military. It is part of the story of the Truman Court um, in that the uh, the court was addressing these these issues of uh, these issues of race as the NAACP and indeed the Department of Justice began to um, argue more aggressively for desegregation in America's civic life. Um, but Harry, Harry Truman served in, a, in World War I. He was an army captain and he served in the infantry and he served in a segregated military, um, an all white unit. And um, this, the experience, the, the experience of battle as for I imagine anyone who has, has experienced the, the horror of combat um, remained with him for the rest of his life, such that when he uh, when he became president and he learned of the attack after World War II, and he learned that African-American veterans were being attacked and even killed while wearing their military uniforms, that deeply upset him and it infuriated him. And this is when they're returning home. Correct, when they were returning home. And um, his, his words uh, were to um, the NAACP executive uh, director, Walter White. He said in the Oval Office, I had no idea it was as bad as that. <laughs> and he wrote to his attorney general, uh, Tom Clark, and he said, uh, we need to do something not on an individual case by case basis, but let me know what can be done. Uh, I forget the exact word, but essentially means on a mass scale. And that led to the executive order desegregating America's military. 
Did all of the justices Truman appointed play a role uh, after he'd left office in, in the, the court's Brown versus Board of Education decision? Well, obviously uh, not the, uh, the chief justice who was already gone by then, but uh, did the others? Yes, they did. Um, they were, um, uh, I say, not not truly the the uh, the protagonists who are most remembered um, in the five cases consolidated as Brown, um, but particularly uh, Justice Sherman Minton, who was Truman's last. Um, nominee to the court, who had been a uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals judge in Indiana and Truman uh, and a friend of Truman's since um, their days in the Senate together. Uh, Justice Sherman Minton was a uh, fervent believer uh, in um, full integration and uh, to the point where when before uh, with the Brown cases, they uh, listened to the cases when Chief Justice Fred Vinson was still alive. And then um, they held over and asked for re-argument on uh, for several questions. Um, And uh, Sherman Minton would uh, was banging on the table and uh, to the point of yelling at his brethren, saying that we have to do the right thing here. And the other justices were worried because they knew that he had a very serious heart condition. But he would get so worked up in these conference in, in the conferences um, discussing uh, the integration cases because he just saw it as a manifest injustice that the court needed to um, address as soon as possible. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large is Ron James Jr., R-A-W-N James Jr. His latest book, The Truman Court, Law and the Limits of Loyalty, published by the University of Missouri Press. I guess we shouldn't be surprised because Harry Truman was the only president who came from Missouri. This is Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Now, FDR had named eight of the nine justices on the court before Truman succeeded him, and then Truman went on to name Justices Harold Burton, Tom Clark, you mentioned Sherman Minton, and also Chief Justice Fred Vinson to the court. Um, In fact, Fred Vinson had been his Secretary of Treasury and was a friend. Um, And another uh, had also been in his administration, the other two had worked closely with him when he was a senator. Why had so many seats become vacant? Well, the, in a short word, because the, the justices died <laughs> back then. This was, uh, you know, and the reason why there is life tenure in Article Three is because um, at the time Article Three was drafted, there was not a life expectancy of you know eighty plus years um, for you know an individual with a white collar job in the United States of America. Um, but so you take the case of, you know, Chief Justice Fred Vinson, who, who came to the court that died shortly uh, thereafter. Um, Justice Frank Murphy, who was appointed by Roosevelt, um, and he passed away. He uh, was the rare uh, federal Washingtonian at the time who did not drink, but um, he still died of heart disease. Um, so it, it was um, life tenure was a, a shorter question uh, during that time. But although all but... Burton were Democrats, the justices didn't always function as a block. Why, why had they split into two opposing groups, one led by Hugo Black and the other by Felix Frankfurter? Oh, that's, that is the, it's, it's truly one of the great, uh, if lesser known rivalries in American history. Well, um, that's what we Franklin read your book. <laughs> right. Then you could read all about it. Right. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's uh, nominees. Part of the problem was that um, they were brilliant and they were all brilliant and had um, very uh, strong um, and particular ideas about the Constitution. So um, Justice Hugo Black um was a senator from Alabama, a former Klansman, um, who later later became a civil rights champion on the court and civil liberties, particularly a civil liberties champion um, on the court. Um, his prior experience to being on the court, um, he, he had been a United States senator, and before that, he had been a um, police station judge. So mm-hmm. he did not come to the to the role with a great deal of uh, of judicial experience. Uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter was um, a tenured professor at Harvard Law School, um, widely respected as the uh, before his nomination as the preeminent scholar of uh, the Supreme Court history and a longtime advisor of presidents and justices. Uh, so he came to the court um, as as a 
um, known quantity with uh, copious amounts of energy. They disagreed with each other based on uh, personality and based on ideas about uh, the law. And um, that's where the, the, the disagreements were. They were substantive as well as personality driven among the justices that uh, Roosevelt um, nominated. And you're right. So when Truman comes in and gets the first vacancy, all eight of the Roosevelt justices uh, remain and the public clamored for and the public clamored for uh, what they called a Republican justice. And this was when Gallup, when now we um, we all know the uh, Gallup polls, this is when the Gallup poll was, um, were truly getting established in the uh, in America as the gold standard. And uh, Americans, according to several Gallup polls, said that they wanted a Republican justice um, to restore some balance on the court. And this is back when we could talk about the uh, justices like we're all adults here and understand that someone who has been a Republican for his or her whole life suddenly does not become some non-political ghost figure um, because um, he or she is appointed to the court. And so um, Truman in a masterstroke um, nominated uh, his friend, uh, Ohio Senator Harold Hitz Burton to the court. And it was a fantastic maneuver applauded by both sides of the aisle. Um, it was able in his very young presidency um, after replacing a extremely popular president, FDR, um, he was able to unite um, both the Congress and regular Americans behind his decision-making in showing true bipartisanship in nominating a Republican Senator to the Supreme Court. And Burton was unanimously confirmed by the Senate. They had uh, served together, Truman and Burton, on the Senate Investigative Committee that oversaw the U.S. war effort during World War II. Um, and uh, despite the, the fact that they were in different parties, didn't they get along pretty well? They got along very well. Uh, Harry Truman did not nominate anyone to the court with whom he did not get along <laughs> very well. They were all his friends, some closer than others. Um, but uh, he, th there, there came a point where he stopped looking at the lists that his White House advisors, uh, the lists of possible nominees that his White House advisors had compiled for him because he had a list in his head and his list consisted of friends of his. Now, the, uh, the justice that Harold Burton replaced was Owen J. Roberts, a conservative who was the only dissenter in a case involving the right to register as a voter, uh, I guess that was uh, a uh, that was about discrimination against black people, and he was actually supporting it, wasn't he? Yes, he did not believe that it should be overturned. And uh, Justice Owen Roberts, uh, his last few years on the court were very um, frustrating for him, as it is for um, any justice, and we see this throughout history um, when the court kind of passes them by. And their vote becomes less relevant and less needed by the majority. And so Owen J. Roberts uh, retired and uh, moved back to Pennsylvania. And the, um, the the he was very happy to leave the rancor behind him because by then the uh, Roosevelt appointees had um, become at, at such odds with each other over so many different issues that uh, the job had lost much of the joy for him. But what are, what did he argument did he use? to say that uh, that people shouldn't necessarily be allowed to register to vote. I mean, I'm sure that there are any number of state legislatures today around the country that would be thrilled if he were back on the court. Right. If I recall correctly, the matter was uh, that, and this uh, was visited later in the Smith versus Allwright decision that um, Thurgood Marshall uh, argued um, that the part that the political parties are private entities. So this was not a matter of state discrimination, which was still legal at the time. The law at the time was Plessy versus Ferguson. So the law at the time allowed for um, for racial discrimination. Um, so sometimes it becomes difficult to even process uh, in, in the uh, 2021 lens um, what was legal and what was not legal at then and what was legal was changing and justice roberts was those uh, was among those uh who stood athwart any attempt at that change um but the law had been that the uh, the parties are the political parties are private entities and um, the naacp decades later successfully um were able to um completely shatter that um, law um, and say that particularly in a state like Texas at the time or, or other states, I mean, many of our states now are one 
essentially, I shouldn't say essentially, but the political parties have a, uh, a great deal of sway on who actually gets elected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were finally able to uh, put to rest um, the notion that um, a political party can discriminate against voters. And, and Plessy versus Ferguson wasn't completely reversed until Brown versus the Board of Education. Correct. And the words are in the field of public education. Um, but it was the, the by by the time the Brown decision was issued in 1954, um, the NAACP had been asking directly asking the court to overturn Plessy's verse, Plessy versus Ferguson for seven years. And it was a risky, an extremely risky maneuver that um, uh, Thurgood Marshall weighed very heavily in working with his um, with his brain trust, some of the best lawyers this nation has ever known, uh, such as Spotswood Robinson. Um, they, they, because the stakes were so high, if the court affirmed Plessy, they would be they would be set back for an untold score of years. And wow. As as the the captain of the ship, Thurgood Marshall was was um, extremely loath to confront Plessy until he was confident of the court um, to which he would be arguing, and um, he became confident, and they began to argue for the overturn of Plessy. And the court under Fred Vinson, what uh, you had uh, some justices as uh, such as uh, Sherman Minton, who said we need to overturn it. It's, it's wrong and it's unconstitutional, but what the court did, rather than issue a divided opinion, they would just ignore the argument and rule on the, um, the particular case at hand in any way that they could without directly confronting Plessy versus Ferguson um, until finally, um, after uh, Chief Justice Fred Vinson's passing, uh, the court was able to unanimously issue the uh, Brown decision. With Earl Warren as the chief justice. Correct. Sherman, with Earl, Earl Warren as the yeah. chief justice. Correct. But did Sherman Minton also uh, become a bit more conservative while he was on the court? In the civil liberties, he was. Um, I don't know if I'd, I, I don't know how much I call it conservative as opposed to uh, right wing. And he, he very much supported uh, Truman, the Truman administration's position um, on many of these civil liberties, uh, civil liberties questions. Um, such as? Such as search and seizure. Uh, the uh, search and seizure cases where um, the police, and this is, um, we have to remember, this is uh, uh, almost two full decades before we have Miranda and many of the things that we now um, almost take for granted. We all know from watching the police shows, those things began with the, uh, with the Warren court. So we're dealing now in the 1940s and uh, the, the police uh, conducting search uh, searches and seizures on uh, very small amounts of evidence, uh, flimsy evidence, or um, calling something a limited search when in fact it was, um, they were not limited searches. Uh, the other thing is dealing with the, um, the communist party. And this was a big, the, um, Allegations from the. This is the beginning of the Cold War. Correct. This is these are the opening years of the Cold War, and some members of the court viewed themselves very much um, on the lines of work of defending the United States against um, communist infiltration, and congressional Republicans at this time were. Begging an argument for political sake, uh, for political purposes, and for substantive purposes, um, and that many of them actually believed it, that the United States w- government was infiltrated by communists. But keep in mind, there were a good number of communists in the United States of America at the time. Um, people who openly avowed communists, not in the government necessarily, who there, if there were some there, they were not open, they could not be openly avowed, but in America. And my uh, aunt Minna. Right. Uh, and and, and uh, Justice Minton saw him uh, um, saw this as a grave threat um, that must be um, that must be met with the full force of the federal judiciary. And, and Chief Justice Fred Vinson was right there with him. Uh, after Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone died in office on April 2nd, 1946, wasn't it rumored that Truman would appoint Robert H. Jackson as his successor? What what happened there? Why didn't that happen? Oh, this this ended up being one of the uh, probably the the greatest scandal um, that the court had known um, 
since the Civil War, certainly um, at the time. Uh, Justice Robert uh, H. Jackson was um, first. He's still regarded by many, uh, myself included, as as the finest writer um, ever to sit on the court. And uh, I think that's in part because he was the last justice not to go to law school, so his his writing didn't get ruined by going to law school. <laughs> um, but uh, he, the problem was that Franklin Roosevelt had told Justice Jackson that he would name him, uh, that he would nominate him for chief justice next. And then Franklin Roosevelt passed away and Harry Truman became president. And Justice Jackson is still has this in his mind that I'm going to be chief justice or I should be um, chief justice. Harry Truman never considered Robert Jackson for chief justice. There was not a chance that Harry Truman was not going to have one of his men sit in the center of the Supreme Court. It simply was not a consideration. He did not consider it at all, um, even though he very much respected Jackson. Um, so when he, he nominates, uh, uh, President Truman nominates uh, Vincent, Justice Jackson at the time is in Germany. He is the lead prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials, um, which was a controversy in itself because um, the other justices uh, to a person believe that justices should not, that a justice should not take on such an onerous assignment and be away from the court for so long because we could, their thinking is we could end up with a bunch of four to four decisions and we're going to have to come back and relitigate, rehear cases. This is just going to make a mess of our business over here. Um, this is a full-time job that you need to be doing over here. Um, so Justice, but Justice Jackson ended up missing an entire term overseas as he's working on the uh, Nuremberg prosecution of um, Nazi war criminals. Wasn't uh, it alleged that Justices Hugo Black and William Douglas had leaked to newspapers that they would resign if Jackson were appointed chief justice? It was it was leaked that um, Justice Black would. That I I believe all of all of my research shows that that um, was not the case. Justice Black is um, in the modern era the only justice, to my knowledge, who never spoke to the press after becoming a justice on the Supreme Court, even after he was accused openly by Justice Robert Jackson of being biased and showing bias uh, to an attorney who had been his former law partner. Um, and he, uh, and even after he was accused by um, uh, former Chief Justice Stone of being not up to the job and unfit for the job and not smart enough for the job um, in several articles written by um, the uh, journalist Marquis, uh, uh, Marquise Childs about uh, Justice uh, Justice Black, through all these um, slings and arrows, never talked to the press. Um, and I don't think he would have resigned his seat for anything. <laughs> um, so, um, in fact, it was it was uh, Justice Roberts who talked to uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter saying that um, working with Justice Black every single week was leading him to uh, want to resign from the court. After he was passed <laughs> over for the Chief Justice uh, nomination, he said to uh, Justice Frankfurter that uh, one wonders if this is a good use of one's life. And they got to talking about how uh, Justice Black during the conferences doesn't even talk about the Constitution or the law. He just talks about what's right and just, right and just. And they were so weary of that. Uh, Frankfurter did not consider resigning, but uh, uh, Justice uh, Jackson, Robert Jackson did. So Truman nominated Frederick M. Vinson, an old friend, as Stone's replacement. Um, isn't he the last Chief Justice nominated by a Democratic president to be confirmed? That's good. I think, yes, I think so. Um, yeah, I don't think that after that, Earl Warren, pretty much every other chief justice right. has been nominated by a Republican. Um, but what was the response to Vincent since there was so much contentious talk about Jackson? Was he a popular choice? Oh, Fred Vincent was, as uh, uh, I believe the, the Washington Postorial Board, if I recall correctly, uh, called a man to trust. He was one of the um, preeminent um, public servants in federal Washington. Um, he had been a, uh, he was from Kentucky, um, was an outstanding college baseball player, 
And uh, as he liked to say, he was born in jail because his, his dad was the jailer and they lived above the jail. And so he was uh, he, and, and he was born at home. Um, he went on to represent Kentucky in the House of Representatives and became a, a um, um a tax expert in the House of Representatives um, and a fantastic orator, a, a, an incredible orator. He served in a number of roles. Um, Franklin Roosevelt point, uh, appointed him to numerous positions, including to the um, to the federal bench um, and then to the um, w- what we would now call OMB, the Office of, Man- Office of Management and Budget. He just uh, he served as uh, Treasury Secretary. He, he served a number of roles. He was so widely respected at the time that um, his nomination for Chief Justice, uh, his nomination to become Chief Justice was uh, greeted by Republicans and Democrats alike as an outstanding decision and, and uh, really the best one that Truman could have made. And they believed that uh, Chief Justice Vinson would be able to unite this fractured court because as uh, Truman said to uh, Vinson, wow, the court, uh, he said, uh, sheesh, the court has really made a mess of itself. And the uh, idea was that uh, Fred Vincent was um the, the federal man in Washington who could come in and, and pull this court back together again. Well, wouldn't uh, people today, many consider it a black mark on Vincent's uh, career that uh, the decision that he made not to stay the executions of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? I don't know. Be, um I don't know. I don't know if I, I, there, there are in, in, in that, in that position, there are in particularly with other, uh, even opinions that, that Vincent wrote dealing with civil liberties, um, just about all of them today would be viewed as, um, incorrectly decided. Um, so I, I, I think that it's, you know, a, perhaps the most prominent example or one of the most prominent examples of it. Um, but I think that his civil liberties uh, jurisprudence is widely disfavored um, today. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, I'm just wild about Harry. Harry's wild about me The heavenly blisses of his kisses Fill me with ecstasy He's sweet just like chocolate We're candy. back with Ron James Jr. Whose latest book is The Truman Court, Law and the Limits of Loyalty, published by University of Missouri Press. This is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Didn't uh, Truman like that version of the song? Yes. I, was, <laughs> I, I, I had to uh, go on mute because I was, I was laughing so hard with the uh, Wild About Harry. Yes, it did. And then it turned back on him during the uh, meat shortage in, in 1946 uh, when all the signs were mild about Harry. We're mild about Harry. And uh, mm-hmm. they were calling him horse meat Harry. And it just ended up being a political disaster uh, for the Democrats. But uh, yes, it, it, um, music paid, played a big part in his uh, personal life. And uh, that song played a uh, big part in his political life as well. And I guess he wouldn't have objected to the fact that Jolson often performed in blackface. That's something that has become an issue much more recently. Yes, but that's, um, that, as, as you suggest, that's not something that would have come up in, in, converse, in his conversations. Uh, when he he nominated uh, his attorney general Tom C. Clark to the court in August 1949, and the New York Times called Clark quote a personal and political friend of Truman's with no judicial experience and few demonstrated qualifications. Harold T. Icke said President Truman has not elevated Tom C. Clark to the Supreme Court; he has degraded the court. What? Why were people so upset about Tom Clark? Tom, Tom Clark, um, for such a young man, came to the nomination with a good deal of baggage. Um, African-Americans were uh, strongly dismayed um, by uh, the fact that he was from 
um, Texas. He had ameliorated many of their concerns during his time as as attorney general, um, but not all of their concerns. As attorney general, he was um, a, a, a very good manager. Uh, he made an odd habit of appearing at Supreme Court arguments to deliver very short remarks before the solicitor general would then actually deliver the argument of the United States. Um, and that, I think rightfully so, rubbed many attorneys the wrong way. Um, I mean, even a layperson knows that the attorney general today does not go before the, the Supreme Court. The, the um, other attorneys do, you know, namely the, the solicitor general. Um, but more substantively, uh, as attorney general, Tom Clark proved very much a um, in favor of restricting civil liberties and uh, res restricting the civil liberties of Americans in regards to speech, in regards to their political activities. Um, and at, before he became attorney general, but while he was a senior official at the Department of Justice, um, he played, he was in charge of um, the DOJ's role in um, corralling American citizens of Japanese descent into uh, the camps that we had in the United States. And uh, that was a ro role he regretted to the end of his days. He spoke uh, very eloquently about it, um, particularly as, as he grew older, how much he regretted doing so. Um, but the fact is that he did it. So he had um, uh, more than his fair share of critics, uh, among them, as you said, Harold Ickes, but Harold Ickes also had his own personal hmm. history with with Truman. So he wasn't much in favor of uh, many of Truman's uh, nominations to any of the jobs in government. Now, Clark also, uh, when he was uh, when he was a, a attorney general, he played a role in, in developing the list of subversive organizations. So I, I'm assuming civil libertarians were also upset. And yet he was confirmed by the, the Senate uh, by a vote of 73 to 8. That's right. And he wrote the list. <laughs> I think it was it was his list. Um, but th these were the days when um, and when I say these were the days, it's most of American history until, you know, the recent debacles that we've had when senators voted for a nominee to the Supreme Court. Unless the person was manifestly unqualified or had conflicts that could not be overcome. And senators who felt that they just couldn't do it, many of them who felt that they just couldn't do it, didn't show up that day. And this continued well, even up until um, uh, Thurgood Marshall, or it continued past Thurgood Marshall's nomination, but on Thurgood Marshall's nomination, had, uh, President Lyndon Johnson working the phones and telling senators, you don't have to be there. And many of them took that advice. So they did not have to vote for Thurgood Marshall to be a Supreme Court justice. And uh, senators at this time did not have to vote for Tom Clark to be a Supreme Court justice. You mentioned that FDR was accused of court stacking. Was Truman also accused of that? Um, not of, of, of court packing, but he was widely criticized, particularly with by the time the Tom Clark nomination came around. Um, he was widely criticized for um, what newspapers were calling cronyism um, by now. They began to notice that everyone who gets on the court is his friend. Uh, and so um, it, 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 the nominations were controversial, and it really was uh, it was unfortunate in the case of Sherman Minton, um, his last nomination to the court, because um, uh, Minton was eminently qualified uh, to sit on the court, uh, having served with distinction uh, for seven years. I mean, served with distinction on the Seventh Circuit uh, for many years. And um, but unfortunately, he also was a good friend of Harry Truman's. And um, this allowed him to be pilloried before the press to the point that the United States Senate had the audacity to ask Sherman Minton to come and sit before the Judiciary Committee for a hearing. There would be a judiciary hearing for this Supreme Court nominee. Sherman Minton respectfully declined to show up. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is, Sean, is Ron James Jr. His latest book, The Truman Court, Law and the Limits of Loyalty, published by the University of Missouri Press.
This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You begin your book with what happened when Truman decided to take control of a number of the nation's steel mills in April 1952 uh, by citing military concerns. Now, was it, there had been an earlier steel strike during his first term. Uh, was, how was this different or were they both similar in some ways? This was different because the nation was at war. Um, we were engaged in the Korean War. The problem that Truman ran into, uh, particularly when his uh, solicitor general was arguing before the Supreme Court, was that Congress had not declared war. And in fact, Truman had not asked Congress to declare war. Uh, the administration called it uh, a police action. This was the beginning. This is something else that Truman brought to the fore, to the fore is uh, the idea that presidents can take the United States to war without Congress acting. A, a whole lot of this gets back to the what has now become the, the, the weakness of the Article II branch of our government that has ceded so many of its most important powers to the other two branches. And that's part of why we have these knockdown, drag out fights over every single Supreme Court nomination now, um, because if Congress is not, doing, is not doing its job, politics abhors a vacuum more than nature does, and someone or something is going to fill that vacuum. In our case, it's the Article I branch. I mean, uh, it's the Article I, uh, I'm sorry, the Article II branch branch, which is um, going to be the presidency and the Article Three branch. The Article One branch, which is supposed to be the most important branch, Congress, has simply not done its job for um, many years. And we see this beginning with the Korean War. That's what was different about the steel strike that uh, opens up um, my book, that Truman said, we need this steel for the war effort. And he closed his uh, speech to the nation that night by saying, we must have steel. But despite the fact that you would have assumed this court, which uh, had uh, mostly Democrats, uh, would have decided otherwise, they ruled six to three that the takeover was unconstitutional in that case, Youngstown Steel and Tube Company versus Sawyer. So how many of his appointees voted against him? Tom Clark, but two of them did, and um, he he never forgave them. He was he was um, he was bitter about it, um, and well into his retirement and and um, into his old age. Um, but the the decision was surprising first because when when I believe that part of why Truman made the decision is because he believed like almost every observer at the time that the court would uphold his decision if it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and also because the, the we, you say it's a six to three decision, those were the votes, but the, the opinions were so fractured. There were so many different reasons. Um, and justice is joining this opinion or that opinion for this particular point um, that it just was kind of a, a, a somewhat indecipherable mess uh, of an opinion. Um, justice Robert Jackson's opinion really carries the day. And it's the one that um, every law student is required to read closely, um, in part because the language is, is just so beautiful. Um, but it, it lays out the what we now accept as uh, the president's um, powers and, and how those powers interact with the other branches of government. Uh, but the, the votes were surprising. It uh, surprised Truman. It, it infuriated him. Um, and also in part because Presidents, uh, President Truman and President Roosevelt for him had seized industries left and right. And they had seized them during World War II. Now, what, what the justices pointed out during oral argument, it correctly so, is that World War II was a declared war. So when the Solicitor General is telling the justices, um, we are at war and that's why we need this steel, um, Justice Jackson says the notes that the president said last week uh, at his press conference that this is not a war. This is a police action. So the administration got caught trying to have it both ways. Um, and it, uh, it, it did not help them. It did not help uh, Chief Justice Vincent trying to argue for the administration during the conference um, with the justices when they were deciding the case. Um, and um, the vote came out uh, six to three. But as I noted, the, the opinions were kind of a, um, uh, to use our phrase from earlier today, a mixed bag. So... 
What precedent was set here in regard to limiting the powers of the president? Have we seen it play out since? Justice Jackson's opinion um, has been cited. Um, I, I couldn't even begin to guess how many times um, by uh, federal courts uh, over over the years um, in delineating the uh, the powers of the president and how those powers interact um, with the strength of the other two branches, um, such that when Congress acts, the president uh, the president's power is diminished. If Congress has not acted on a particular matter, the Congress's power is, I mean, the, the president's power is stronger. Um, so that's really the, the only, as far as precedent, um, I would say it's uh, Justice Jackson's opinion has has carried the day, almost not, not by the decision of, it, it, this is um, almost unique in, in the um, in the court's history and in, in our common law, but not it's carried the day, not necessarily by the votes of the justices at the time, but by the votes of innumerable lawyers and judges since then. Do you see comparisons to recent and possible future court decisions, especially uh, because the Democrats have a razor thin control of the Senate now? I'm, I'm extremely concerned for the uh, about the nomination process um, going forward, and I should say the confirmation process going forward. I think the nomination process is sound. Um, the, the confirmation pro- process has become um, extremely problematic uh, for our, for our country. Well, our current president was. Uh, allowed Clarence Thomas to be, sit on the court. He has been. <laughs> I don't think Thomas would vote along with Biden on practically any issue. No, he wouldn't. Those those hearings were a um, really a watershed uh, moment in in the in the history of hearings of of the court. Um, it was it was just uh, astounding how Anita Hill was was treated by the senators. Um, the things that they said about her um, on the record to journalists outside the hearings. Um, it, it, it's just something that it, at least we can say it's something that would not happen today. Um, the, no witness would be treated today um, the way that she was treated uh, in 1991. It was uh, terrifically unfortunate. Um, and I think our current president recognizes that. Well, the court is is uh, split, but in last week's unanimous jury verdict uh, requirement ruling, the Supreme Court said that a decision last term that held that the Constitution requires unanimous jury verdicts for state criminal trials doesn't apply retroactively, and and the liberals on the court voted that way as well. Right, and oh, no, the, it was uh, a six. To, I'm sorry, it was a six to three majority decision. I'm <laughs> written by by uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Obviously, correct. It was all the yes. conservatives, uh, the six, and the three liberals were the, voted against. In fact, uh, yeah, Elena K- Elena Kanigan, um wrote the dissent. She was joined by the two, the, the court's two liberal members. Right. It's the yes. The the. Um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and, and but what I I have a, a great deal of trouble with. I, I think there are two liberals on the court. Um, there there are two liberals. I think Justice Sotomayor, um, and arguably Justice Kagan. I I mean, it, it, truly, there's one. There there and, there and may not be Breyer? Um, No, no, he's no no he's 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 not he's he's not a liberal on the court. Just is not. There are not. Um, the, the rest of them are not conservatives. The Chief Justice is a conservative. A right wing justice is not a conservative. So we take uh, Justice um, Justice Thomas is is really the best example. Um, he's referred to as this arch conservative justice. No, a in a a willingness, even an eagerness to overturn precedent, recent precedent, is not conservative. It's the opposite of conservatism. You are not trying to conserve anything. You are trying to pursue an agenda, a judiciary agenda a judicial agenda that is right wing in nature. That's not conservatism. The individual is not trying to conserve anything. I don't think that our three, uh, it, it remains to be seen because they're so new, but the three most recent uh, um, uh, 
members of the recently joined members of the court, it remains to be seen whether or not they're conservative. Right now, I don't see a whole lot of conservation. They're not conserving things. So being right wing is not the same thing as being a conservative justice. The, the, the chief justice is a conservative justice. Well, he we'll wants to see move incrementally we'll... in different aspects of the law. But um, I, I it, it, we do not have, I, like I said, I think there's one, possibly two liberals on the court. Um, and I don't know how many conservatives we have, but certainly not as many as people think. And uh, the, uh, the new abortion case probably will reveal a lot as well. Uh, just one more thing. We have no time left. But what are your thoughts about the calls for Justice Breyer to retire? I think real politic has finally um, met the court there. It's a matter of votes and the justices do not like to think of themselves as votes. But the fact of the matter is that's how um, the rest of us necessarily have to see them. I thank you so much for being on our show. Ron James, Jr., former assistant attorney general for the District of Columbia, where he's practiced law for two decades in Washington, D.C. We've been discussing the Truman Court Law and Limits of Loyalty, published by the University of Missouri Press. He's also the author of A Root and Branch, Charles Hamilton, Houston, Thurgood Marshall, and the Struggle to End Segregation, and The Double V, How Wars, Protests, and Harry Truman Desegregated America's Military. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure and a fascinating conversation. I appreciate Thank it. you very much, Leonard. I really enjoyed it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our one-hour in-depth interviews with one guest, you can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that podcasts are available. Or you can find them on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to support WBAI by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now so that this show can continue coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored on the air. Uh, why not make that call right now to make the, the show that this show and the station that brings it to you will be here in the years to come? And consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. Again, the number to call to make that tax-deductible contribution is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And everyone has already stepped, stepped up to support this program during this terrible pandemic. Thank you so much. And I'm sure you're going to want to join us for tomorrow's show when award-winning author Julia E. Swig will discuss her fascinating new book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. We'll see you then.